We all know what it's like to be tired and to really be craving for a good sleep. But what if you're so tired all the time that you really can't do anything? Today we're going to be talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. Hello and welcome to Wellbeing. I'm Graham Wilson. Tim Roberts is Emeritus Professor of Biology in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Newcastle. He continues to conduct research into chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis and autism. And we have him joining us in the Wellbeing Studio today. Hi, Tim. G'day there, Graham. Pleased to be here. Thanks for coming in. Tell us about this chronic fatigue syndrome. There's three words there. I mean, we all get tired and a refreshing sleep or even perhaps a holiday once in a while and we're back to normal. So, you know, we understand what fatigue is. So how is chronic and syndrome related to that? Okay, well, uh, in terms of people going to the doctor, you've got 80 to 90% of people are going to the doctor uh, because they're feeling tired or fatigued and they, they're not sure uh, what's wrong with them or they know what's wrong with them, but that's one of the symptoms. So indeed, we've probably got uh, in our population at least 10% of people who are chronically fatigued. That is fatigued all the time, not just fatigued a little bit from an infection and then they get over it when the, uh, when, when the body's immune defences clean out the infection, but these people carry it all the time, they're tired. And then there's about 1% of people who, are, who come under the definition of chronic fatigue syndrome. So to fit that definition, you need to have had that chronic fatigue for at least six months, and then you need to have had a whole lot of uh, known uh, diseases, infections that cause chronic fatigue as one of their symptoms, um, you need to have them excluded. And if all everything else has been excluded and you've got this chronic ongoing fatigue, then you fit the definition of chronic fatigue syndrome. Certainly some uh, clinicians apply it very, very loosely and others apply it very, very strictly. If you're doing research, uh, then you need to find an internationally accepted um, definition of chronic fatigue syndrome and and make sure all your study subjects fit within that. And, and then, of course, you have um, control subjects who aren't carrying all those symptoms. I believe the definition was mooted in 1988. Is that right? Yes, uh, it's been up, uh, upgraded. Uh, we're using one from the 2000s, 2006, I think. But yes, uh, generally, uh, there's uh, chronic fatigue syndrome research societies all around the world societies in each country and they of course uh, are looking to just as the uh, Department of Health in Australia is uh, looking to have standard definitions so you can compare research or findings in one area uh, of the world with those in another. But it's been around a long time. If I could preempt a question that might come from that, um, chronic fatigue syndrome or its other name, myalgic encephalomyelitis, we've had outbreaks of that since the 1800s. And interestingly, outbreaks in a particular geographical area. And again, to my mind, uh, that is uh, telling us something about what's happening. It's telling us that 
there is something in that area, in that region, in that city, in that uh, army barracks, which is um, uh, common to all of the people who go down there, or in that hospital, the Royal Free Hospital in London, where 300 of the staff went down. Um, it's, it's saying there's some external factor there affecting them all. So in that particular instance, when you say they went down... How severe is this fatigue? You know, what are people presenting with? So in that case, if memory serves me right, there was a huge amount of muscle pain, fibromyalgia, there were gut disturbances, there were, uh, there were mental uh, problems, if you like, in terms of fogginess of thinking, uh, as well as chronic fatigue. Um, so much so that the hospital closed and doctors and nurses, about 300 of them, were absolutely incapacitated. Some of them took uh, years to recover. I understand some of them never got rid of the symptoms. My historical <laughs> mind is, is a little hazy on that one now. It's uh, quite a while since I've reviewed the documents on Royal Free Hospital, but... Uh, certainly it was an amazing event, an event, one of the oldest hospitals in London was shut down because the staff uh, were all unwell. What you're describing there is in it, not just tiredness, I mean, do the other symptoms have to be present, like the brain fog that you're describing or the gut problems? Do, do they all have to be there? Is it a whole no, collection? No, no, the, the definition allows a perhaps a majority of the suite of symptoms. Let me just uh, read these out for our listeners because it's uh, vitally important, I think, to have a feeling that what is the breadth of symptoms that are related to this fatigue of six months or more. So post-exertion malaise, in other words, you are able to do a few push-ups or you are able to ride an exercise bike or walk up some stairs, but the next day you have just uh, dreadful aches, pains and tiredness. So post-exertion malaise, commonly there's sore throat, gut disturbance with nausea, sleep disturbance as well, but often lymph node tenderness and, uh, and headaches, very, very common, muscle pains, very, very common, and night sweats are very, very common. So recurrent feverishness. And then associated with that, the annoying one, I think for lots, most people, uh, in my case it's just old age, but uh, forgetfulness where your brain's just not working as you know it used to. Mm. As I said, in my Brain case fog. it's old age, you know, so definitely not working as it used to. But uh, And photophobia, that's another one. Photophobia and neurological symptoms. Uh, we're in Sydney my wife and I, on Monday night, I gave a talk at a Rotary Club very early on Tuesday morning. We're driving out of Sydney about half past nine and we went past the church where we went to the funeral of Alison Hunter. Now, Alison Hunter was a patient of many, many clinicians and we worked to try to help her in our laboratory. We are biologists, Hugh Dunstan and I, so we're not clinicians. And we drove past this church where we'd been to her funeral and she, I think, was 14 years old when she died and she had this chronic, this terrible photophobia. So for uh, the three or four years that I knew her, 
she was in her bedroom, almost unable to move, but dark, mm-hmm. in the dark, because of the photophobia. So it's a range of symptoms. So not mm-hmm. everybody has those same symptoms. And later on in this discussion, I hope we'll get to the, the sort of future thoughts our laboratory has and other laboratory has that there is chronic infection in, at the base of this, infection with an unknown organism. And the logic of that, I think, is related also to this, that if the infective agent is an organism in a certain area, it may give more neurological symptoms, it may give more brain-related symptoms than another organism that might cause gut or muscle pain. You know, So long answer to your question. It's a very complex condition, isn't it? Uh, Professor Tim Roberts is my guest on Wellbeing Today and we're talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. Um, Tim, you mentioned the young girl who was afraid of the light chronic fatigue syndrome doesn't respect age at all, does it? It's uh, right across the board? Yes, it's, it's certainly right across the board and it's uh, across uh, males and females as well and it's also across countries. There's a greater incidence of reporting in some countries compared to others but at the end of the day it can be found pretty well in the literature, uh, clinical literature of most countries. So in terms of age, from uh, children through to uh, people my age, and, and, and I'm well into my 70s. Mm-hmm. As a researcher, do you have much dialogue with the clinicians who are treating people with chronic fatigue syndrome? Are you informed much by the medical fraternity? I think uh, in terms of the the management, uh, Australia is doing much better than it, than it used to. It used to be that many, many clinicians would, uh, would not uh, think that there was such a problem as a chronic fatigue syndrome, and that has changed. That has changed. There's been a, a clinical advisory committee uh, on Lyme disease in Australia. There's been... Uh, studies in the Senate of chronic fatigue syndrome and so on, and there is a greater realisation, to my mind, that um, patients who are complaining of uh, chronic fatigue uh, should well be examined along the lines of uh, the recommendations of the College of General Practice. And those recommendations, I think, are good recommendations because... They take into account the breadth of the symptoms that a clinician might expect to see associated with chronic fatigue syndrome. So there's likely to be gut problems, there's likely to be sort of myalgic problems, there's likely to be depressive symptoms, there's likely to be uh, the inflammatory state symptoms. And so uh, the GPs today have got a much better armament for looking at the treatment of the symptoms, there's still a need to have more research and more clinical understanding of what might be the underlying primary cause of that range of symptoms because, indeed, your response to an infection is that you have a sickness behaviour induced in you by your body's defensive proteins, your cytokines and your interleukins, are putting you into a state where 
you don't want to eat where you want to sleep, you're not interested in talking to people, uh, where you have a raised body temperature, where you are just in a catabolic state using your muscle proteins to get amino acids to build the defensive molecules, and so you have muscle wasting. So in an acute infection... You will be in that sickness behaviour state for three or four days. Your body will make all these proteins like fury to defend yourself, antibodies and cytokines and interleukins and uh, interferons. And then uh, when you've cleared up the infection, you go back into wellness behaviour. So your body switches into the anabolic state. You start to eat, you start to smile, you start to talk to people, you're not tired anymore and so that is the acute situation many of the symptom set of the chronic fatigue syndrome people are an extension of that sickness behavior for a long long period of time a normal healthy human is in what you describe then as the anabolic state so your body is shunting everything in the right places, you know, your food is giving the kind of nutrition that you need and everything's working perfectly. Um, catabolic is the opposite of that, is it? It's, it's exactly that. It's, uh, it's when you are no longer digesting your food properly. If we take just the building blocks of proteins, the amino acids, uh, in the catabolic state, you're not digesting the protein you eat to get the amino acid building blocks so you can't break down the protein into the amino acids. A protein is like a string of beads. Think of a string of pearls around the neck of your grandmother. That string of pearls is amino acids joined together. So it is a protein, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, when we eat protein, we eat meat, we eat fruit, plants, whatever with protein in it, we break down that string of pearls into single beads, into single pearls. They are the amino acids. We absorb them and then we use them. There are 20 of them, different sorts. We use them to build our own proteins. In the case of a catabolic state, when we're fighting an infection, we stop that digestion in the stomach. We stop the secretion of, of stomach acid to assist in the digestion, and we go into this flight-or-fight response, if you like, uh, where we break down muscle protein, which is where we store our amino acids. We break down those proteins to give amino acids to build our defensive molecules. It's a bit like in my Latin lessons of way back in secondary school, the farmers would melt down the plowshares to make spears, Mm -hmm. right? So we melt down our muscle protein to make defensive proteins. And so after an infection, you know, when we start to feel well again three or four days later, we might be two kilograms lighter because we've digested away our muscle proteins. And so the catabolic state is that. And in the catabolic state, um, we go into that briefly in exercise Uh, So our footballers, all of our athletes, when they are exercising uh, flat out, they're in a catabolic state. Mm. And when they finish the football match, they really don't want to eat a a steak. But half an hour, an hour later, they're ravenously hungry and they want to eat a steak. Mm. 
to build up again. Now, somebody with chronic fatigue syndrome takes much longer to reach that anabolic state? We, uh, we believe they stay in the catabolic state chronically. Chronically means for months and months and years and years. And I know um, there's been some research into this that um, exercise, you know, if you just push through and do the exercise and eat well, all will get better eventually. That isn't the solution, though, is it? Uh, in a small percentage of cases, it seems to assist. In the literature, uh, there are some that support that as a way to go. It became very popular in terms of clinical treatments um, in uh, around 2000 onwards. And it was said, look, uh, just get up there and exercise. But at the end of the day, it um, isn't the solution. It isn't the solution. There are those who can't even get out of bed. Uh, I mean, uh, so exercise is almost impossible. The interesting thing when you talk about chronic fatigue syndrome is people will say, oh, yes, well, my friend says he or she's got it, but they look perfectly normal, you know. They look they look well, there's plenty of fat on them, um, and they look good. And basically our interpretation of that is that these individuals are still in a catabolic state. They're still digesting away their muscles. So if you ask them to walk upstairs, they almost can't. But they are often taking a huge amount of carbohydrate and caffeine in to get through the day. The body then converts that into, uh, stores it into fat for reasons that I can't go into here, but there seems to be a good biochemical uh, story behind it. So in the chronic fatigue syndrome individuals generally look, if you like, um, a, a particular body mass index that you would say, oh, well, they, 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 look, they look healthy. Yeah. They're not skinny. They're not um, what we see in these uh, terrible photos from, uh, uh, from refugee camps and so on. We think that, again, is another reflection of the chronic catabolic state. Mm. So they're not putting it on. They physically cannot move. Absolutely. Absolutely. There is no no mental put on in this. It is an organic cellular problem. Mm. You're listening to Wellbeing. My guest today is Emeritus Professor Tim Roberts from the University of Newcastle. And we're talking about chronic fatigue syndrome. Tim, let's get to the research and very briefly your way into that. What was your interest in it that uh, originally set you going on chronic fatigue? I've had an interest for a long time in um, immunology. And immunology is a study of how the immune system protects the body from infection. I've never much been interested in the immunology of plants, but plants do have a similar sort of defence system that works in a different way. But uh, all of the mammals, uh, and indeed all of the animals, have defensive systems. Um, The immunology section, the immunology area, is something that fascinated me. And we had a lot of people unwell in this region in particular in the cotton industry, when I came to Newcastle, talking with some clinicians, particularly 
Mark Donoghue from Sydney, Hugh Dunstan and I decided to see if we could find any marker molecules in these people who were diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome because in in the early 90s, chronic fatigue syndrome was seen as something that was really just in the mind of the individual and it wasn't in any way organic. It wasn't in any way a, a physiological problem, a pathological problem in the body itself. So we were measuring molecules in the urine and, and we found that indeed there was a disturbance in the, the profiles in the urine by gas chromatography and mass spectrometry, and the net result was, after we'd studied similar patient groups with autism, with fibromyalgia, with rheumatoid arthritis, and interestingly with dyslexia, we found that there was this change in uh, the urine profile that uh, we put down to a chronic catabolic state, and um, we subsequently... uh, we're doing um, studies with the use of freer form amino acids uh, and found indeed that uh, supplementation with these free form amino acids was uh, very helpful uh, in these patients. And so that's, that's where we came from and Hugh Dunstan and I and uh, other colleagues over the years have been working in this area uh, and recently we have um, have started a uh, after a, a patent on an amino acid technology we've started a company to try to commercialize this better and get it out into the uh, marketplace and 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 try and help people so is the current thinking with research a way of there's obviously not a cure-all for it or a pill that you can take that can stop it. Is it to relieve symptoms so that people can get ahead of it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, if you have a look at uh, what the quotation marks the good clinicians uh, do, you'll see that they have quite an armament of uh, treatments which are in themselves are very helpful. So... One of the big ones is, as I said, uh, amino acid uh, supplementation. The second one is uh, the vitamin B12 injections. And again, here is uh, if you've got uh, the stomach not performing properly, if you've got uh, lack of acidity in the stomach, then you will have the non-production of intrinsic factor, which is necessary to pick a vitamin B12 molecule from your food, bind it and take it across the gut wall into the blood. Um, So vitamin B12 isn't getting in, and uh, many of these uh, sufferers benefit greatly, at least for a week or two, from an injection of vitamin B12. The omega-3 fatty acids, uh, which are anti-inflammatory in themselves, are very, very useful. In the case of those people with reading difficulties and the Erlen lenses are very useful and so on. So there is there are, for the thinking clinician, ways to make the life of the individual much better. Another one, for instance, is many of the chronic fatigue syndrome uh, group have food intolerances. 
because their gut uh, has, they have disturbance of the gut and the gut bacteria. And so uh, many of them don't recognise the food intolerance that they have. But when their diet is changed and that food is eliminated, then, then a whole lot of their symptoms uh, lessen. It sounds to me, Tim, like there's got to be a holistic approach to this and each of those individual diseases that are part of the syndrome need to be addressed individually but with a mind to the overall problem. Exactly. I, I think you've put it very clearly there. Um, and with a mind, uh, from the clinician's point of view, to what is the history of this individual? So... For if that individual has, for instance, been to the United States and been where the Lyme disease organism is predominant, Borrelia burgdorferi, they, or sometimes from Europe, they could be carrying uh, an infection which, if the clinician is aware of their movements, they may say, oh, well, we should test for that. And, and so we see some Borrelia guarinii here, in individuals, Borrelia burgdorferi, to a lesser extent, and it may be even in Australia we have our own uh, uh, similar tick-transmitted organism yet to be discovered. If you travel to Southeast Asia, then there's Rickettsia susugumashi, which is a common infection you bring back. Giardia is another one, and so on. And so it takes me back to my earlier point that... Many of the chronic fatigue syndrome patients who come into the surgery may, in fact, be carrying a well-known infection uh, that perhaps uh, they were unaware of and, you, and the clinician hasn't yet looked for, or the clinicians before this one haven't, haven't yet looked for, because one of the sad, sad parts of uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is that Patients go from doctor to doctor to doctor to doctor because uh, they are unable to find a solution. And uh, it may be they have a number of GPs before they, they end up with a specialist and one specialist may end up with them in the uh, psychology area and... They may then end up with the prescription that they need to get up and exercise. Another GP may send them down the gastro route and they end up with a gastroenterologist and perhaps they end up with a dietitian and the mm. diet's changed. And, and similarly, so it goes that each of the clinical specialisations also only looks at one little through one little window. And all of those things are important, though, aren't they, within the treatment of it, but they need to be viewed as a whole. Yes. I mean, a good antibiotic would look after some of those things too, wouldn't they, that you've mentioned? Yes. If the infection is known, if the sensitivity of that infection to a particular antibiotic is known, then clearly that is absolutely the way to go. But it is not acceptable to use antibiotics without knowing why you're using them. Mm. What is the target? Well, mm. it sounds like it would be overwhelming for a person who was in the situation of having chronic fatigue to try and manage all of that themselves. So hopefully there are emerging specialists and people who understand this very well now. 
Yeah, I, I agree with you again. And uh, we last year we organised a uh, half-day symposium for uh, general practitioners in the Newcastle region to uh, talk about the clinical side of chronic fatigue syndrome. And uh, some expert uh, clinicians came to give presentations, uh, 30 or 40, perhaps 50 in the audience, um, then went away from that half-day session with a better understanding of what is clinically underlying this uh, chronic fatigue syndrome and also what are the options to, uh, uh, to treat it. Well, our time is up, Tim, and I thank you very much. We certainly understand a lot better than we did uh, half an hour ago about this condition, the chronic fatigue syndrome, and uh, what can be done about it, how it can be managed, and the research that's happening. And thank you. My thank pleasure. You thank in. you, Graham. My guest today has been Tim Roberts, Emeritus Professor of Biology in the School of Life Sciences at the University of Newcastle. He continues to conduct research into chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, rheumatoid arthritis and autism. I'm Graham Wilson at the University of Newcastle and all of us at Wellbeing wish you well.